Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to gather this morning as your church. It's a privilege to worship you. You alone are worthy. And Heavenly Father, now as we turn our attention to the word of God, we pray that your spirit would work through your word, that you would accomplish your purpose in each and every one of us, that you would prick us where we need pricking, that you would encourage us where we need encouraging, that you would change us for your glory. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give me boldness, give me authority to proclaim the truth of your word with clarity. May your word go forth powerfully from this pulpit for your glory. May you be honored in all that is said and done in Jesus' name. Amen. John 13, 21 to 38. You've probably heard of the term a con artist or a con man. A con artist is someone who cheats or tricks others by persuading them to believe, to, to believe something that is not true. In essence, a con artist lives a lie in order to get whatever they want. One of the most well-known con artists in recent memory is a man by the name of Frank Abagnale. Between the ages of 15 to 22, Frank made his living by taking on at least eight different identities. During this time, Frank pretended to be an airline pilot. He pretended to be a doctor. He pretended to be a lawyer, among other things. Frank tricked banks into giving him money. He tricked airlines into giving him free flights and a paycheck. He tricked a doctor into giving him a job, training students. And he tricked his way into the Louisiana bar in order to work at a law office. Frank was not trained in any of these fields. Yet with confidence, he gained others' trust in order to get what he wanted. In fact, you may not have known this, but the word con man comes from confidence. It's a man who speaks with confidence, and that confidence gives him clout. And then others listen and follow. And perhaps what is most shocking about Frank's crimes is the boldness with which he carried them out. He didn't pick easy targets. He took on the identity of some of society's most trusted professions. I mean, just imagine, put yourself in the shoes of one of Frank Abagnale's victims this morning. Imagine finding out that the, the pilot of the plane that you are on, that his license is fabricated. Imagine finding out that your doctor was a fake. Imagine realizing that your lawyer is a fraud. Imagine the betrayal, the shock of finding out that those you trust with your life and your freedom are not who they say they are. And as we come to John 13, 21 to 38 this morning, we find a fraud in the most unlikely of places. We find a fraud among the 12 disciples personally called by Jesus. This is one of those passages. It doesn't have an easy break. 
Last week we looked at John 13, 1 through 20, and I, I easily could have gone all the way through 38. In fact, I could have gone on into 14 and 15. There's not an easy break here. So as we pick up in verse 21, we pick up in the middle of an ongoing narrative this morning. In fact, you'll notice in verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. Jesus is troubled in spirit because of what has happened in verses 1 to 20. And as we come into John 13, the narrative has transitioned from the public ministry of Jesus in John 1 to 12 to his more private relationship with his disciples leading up to his passion, to the cross. So as we come into John 13, we are peeking in on the last intimate hours that Jesus has with those he loves before the cross. In this private setting, Jesus displays his deep love for his disciples. As we saw last week, as he gets down on his hands and his knees and he washes their feet. And then he calls them to that same kind of selfless love. Yet even in this intimate moment, this focus shifts from love for one another to a traitor that is in their midst. In the same breath that Jesus calls them to love, he informs them that one of them will betray him. So as we come to John 13, 21, in the following, the, come to John 13, 21, the following question is on our mind. How can this be? How can there be a traitor, a fraud in these 12 disciples that Jesus called? And how will the disciples respond to this shocking news? So as we move forward into John 13, 21 to 38, we see the dual themes of love and betrayal continue. And this morning we'll see a traitor, a challenge, and a lesson. First thing we see in verses 21 to 32 uh, is a traitor. Verse 13, 21 to 30, a traitor. Verse 21 makes it clear that although Jesus knows what Judas will do, and what must happen, Jesus knows, and yet it still weighs heavy on him. When Jesus had said these things, well, what is it that he has said? Well, verse 18 to, to 20, Jesus identifies the fact that there is a betrayer among them. So as he identifies that, as we come now into verse 21, these are weighing heavy on Jesus' heart. He is troubled in spirit. In fact, we mentioned last week, how in John 13, 18, Jesus is quoting Psalm 41, 9. In Psalm 41, 9, David's betrayal at, by Ahithophel. And how that looks forward to Jesus' betrayal by Judas. Now I find it interesting that just a few verses later, here in verse 21, we find Jesus struggling with the very same emotions, the very same feelings that David struggled with in Psalm 40. One, Jesus is here described as troubled in spirit over Jesus' betrayal. 
So maybe you know, on, on Wednesday nights, we are working our way through the Psalms. And some of David's heaviest psalms come not as he is on the run from Saul. They come not as David is, is, is being chased by his enemies. The heaviest psalms are when his friends betray him. Both Psalm 41 and Psalm 55 display the great distress that David is under as his close companions turn on him as they stab him in the back. This weighs heavy on David. And here in John 13, Jesus, the greater David, the one who will fulfill God's covenant with David, is fighting through those very same feelings. And it weighs heavy on his heart and his spirit. I mentioned before, as you come to verse 21, one of the questions on our minds should be, well, how are the disciples going to respond to this? How are they going to respond to this realization that there is a traitor in their midst? And the reality is, it seems that the first time Jesus missed it, mentioned it, they missed it. Because you, as you come to verse 21, he repeats it. He goes on to state it very plainly in case the disciples did not yet understand what he was saying. One of you will betray me. Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you. This must have been very difficult words to utter. This must have been very difficult words to hear. You see, the only people in this room were Jesus and, the, or, or Jesus and the 12 men that he had personally chosen to follow him. There, there's not the, la, the large crowds here. There's not the Pharisees and the Sadducees, those who are against Jesus. This is Jesus and the 12 men that he specifically called to follow him. And he says, one of you will betray me. One of you who have walked with me these last three years, who have seen the miracles that I have done. One of you who were there when I raised Lazarus from the dead. One of you who passed out bread and fish as I fed over 5,000 people. One of you who saw me walk on water and heal the sick. One of you will betray me. The disciples had missed every other hint that Jesus had given. They could not miss this. There is no more denying the fact that there is a traitor in their midst, even in this intimate circle. And look with me, if you will, at verse 22. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about who he spoke. I love this verse because as shocking as this revelation must have been, you would assume that there would be some general idea among the disciples of who this is, would you not? I mean, think about when you were in school, regardless of if you're in first grade or if you're in 12th grade or if you're in college, if, if something had been stolen or something had been vandalized or whatever the issue may be, everyone likely had an idea of who it was already in their mind, did they not? You see, the teachers may not know, but the students, as students, we know. We know our classmates. We know that guy's kind of sketchy. He's done that before. 
that girl's a little weird. It's probably her. We have ideas in our head of who it is. There, there are cl- cl- uh, clues, there are hints. Yeah, verse 22 makes it clear that they're completely perplexed. They have not the slightest idea of who it is. That is fascinating, and it tells us two things. First, it tells us that Judas's outward actions did not indicate the heart of a traitor. Judas didn't look like a traitor. In fact, Judas may have been the very last person to, that would have been suspected among the disciples. He was charged to keep their money, which likely means that he was deemed one of the most trustworthy. Judas did not look like a traitor. Secondly, Jesus did not treat Judas like a traitor. Think about that. Think about that. Jesus knew. We just saw that last week in John 13, 1 to 20. We've seen that in several points throughout John, that Jesus knew. He knew his disciples. He knows what's going on. He knows what God is doing. He knows that Judas will betray him, and yet he does not treat Judas like a betrayer. He doesn't treat him like a traitor. Jesus, knowing that Judas was a traitor, loved Judas like a friend. He did not exclude Judas from private conversations. He did not avoid close contact or eye contact with Judas. He did not speak badly about him behind his back. Jesus loved Judas dearly. In fact, I would submit to you this morning that it is likely that one of the reasons that Jesus is troubled in spirit is not just because what Judas' betrayal would mean for Jesus, but because of what it would mean for Judas. Because Jesus loved Judas. He cared for him. As this revelation is unfolded, one of you will betray me. And the chaos of that moment, his conversation around this table is, is, is sparked among the disciples. Peter motions to John to find out who it is. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. I want to pause here and, and kind of explain what's going on. You might say, how, how is he leaning on his bosom? What is going on here? When you think of the disciples sitting around at a table, don't think of the famous painting, The Last Supper, as they're sitting at a table. It's likely not what it looked like. In fact, when we were, uh, in 2010, I had the opportunity to go to um, Israel with my grandfather and, and my siblings, and we went and toured, and uh, we had the opportunity, we got to Jerusalem to go around and look at a room very similar to the upper room where this might have happened. And we were going around, and one day as we were in Bethlehem, and we were in a shop, there was this beautiful carving, this piece of wood. Hopefully you can see that. This beautiful carving that my, my grandparents ended up buying this, actually. And the shopkeeper was explaining to us how this is how they would have sat. This is what it would have looked like. Here's another picture from up top. Notice it's not a table that they're all sitting in chairs next to each other. It's a, it's a U-shape 
And they're laying with their feet away from the table. I think that helps us to picture what's going on here. As, Judas is lay, as, as John is laying, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is laying on Jesus. It's not, it's not some weird thing that is going on. It's simply the fact that they are just laying next to each other. They're leaning next to each other at this table. In fact, there's some very particular things that are of interest here. In this picture, this right here would be Jesus. And we know from the passage that John is sitting next to him. This would be John sitting in the place of honor to the right of Jesus, the host of this feast. What's interesting to note is that Judas is likely on the other side, on the left side of Jesus, another place of honor. Again, that tells us Judas did not look like a traitor. In fact, this passage hints at this in the fact that Jesus gives the, the bread that he dips, he gives it to Judas, which means Judas is close enough to where he can do that. And again, we, when we get to that, we'll see that that is a, a sign of honor, an offer of friendship. Notice also that Peter is not near Jesus. Peter has to uh, give a, get John's attention. John, ask him. Peter is likely one of these over here, on the other side of the table. And so Peter saying, John, ask Jesus what's going on, who this is. It would not have made sense for Peter to yell that across the table for all to hear when John is laying right next to him. So Peter motions to the disciple whom Jesus loved, identified as, as John later on in John 21, verses 20 to 25. John, ask him who it is. Who is this traitor that is in our midst? And John leans back. As he is laying here, he leans back against Jesus in a more private conversation. And he says, Jesus, who is it? Who is this traitor that is in our midst? John 13, 26, 29, Jesus answers John's question. He answers it with a very specific answer. And yet the disciples, as you'll notice, still have no idea who it is. John says, Lord, who is it? Verse 25, verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew of what reason he said this to him. How can that be? Jesus has literally just said, it's the person I give this bread to. Here you go. Wow, why do you do that? How did they miss this? It seems that John's conversation with Jesus is likely not a conversation that's had loudly for all to hear. It's likely a very private conversation. As John leans back on Jesus' breast and he's talking to him. Who is it, Lord? It's the person to whom I give this bread. Here you go, Judas. And it may be that John heard Jesus' answer and he fails to grasp the significance or the immediacy of Judas' betrayal. We have to remember that John didn't have the end of the story yet. He had no idea what was going on, how soon this was happening. He may not have picked up on that yet. 
But it's also interesting to note the very sign that Jesus says, it's whom I give this bread to. The sign is significant. Because as Jesus dips the bread and gives the savory treat to Judas, culturally this would have been an honor. Culturally this would have been an offer of friendship. Many commentators note that perhaps Jesus is here reaching out to Judas one more time. Judas, I love you. I care about you. I am your friend. Yeah, Judas takes the bread, but rejects Jesus. In fact, it's at this very moment that Satan enters Judas, likely taking possession of him. Judas has made a decision. He takes the bread from Jesus, but he rejects Jesus. Judas's frustration, his desire to betray Jesus, has likely been building since at least the beginning of John 12, if not earlier. In John 13, 2, Judas is already under the influence of Satan. And now he's under the control of Satan. And yet at the same time, it's important for us to note that Judas is a willing puppet. Satan does not plant desires that have not already taken root in Judas's heart. Satan uses Judas's desires to fulfill his own purposes. Judas here has reached the point of no return. He has chosen to reject Jesus. And Jesus' words to Judas, what you do, do quickly. It's not an encouragement. Go sin. But it's a surrendering of Judas to sin. You have made your decision. Go out. Judas has made his bed and there is no point in delaying the inevitable. Therefore, go quickly. Go from this place. And yet, notice this. Even in this, no one has the slightest suspicion of Judas as a traitor, except perhaps John himself, even still. And I think that there is a lesson for us in this. Do not confuse reputation or giftedness with godliness. No one suspected Judas. No one had any idea. He was trusted. He was beloved. He was sitting next to Jesus himself. He was given this savory bread. He's gifted. He has a good reputation. Do not confuse reputation or giftedness with godliness. We are easily impressed, are we not? But beware, because the same men and women who impress you can just as quickly and easily let you down. Only God will never let you down. Only God is always faithful and true. 
How exemplary must have been Judas's works, and yet how black was his heart all along? We've seen this even in our day over the last several months as a beloved and highly respected Christian teacher and apologist has been shown to be to, to have sexually abused many women in private. And he's not the first Christian leader to do this. Don't trust in man, trust in God alone. Verse 30, having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. He takes the bread, and he goes into the night. All throughout the book of John, darkness and night represent evil. They stand for darkness. They stand for evil. And so as Judas walks into the night, he leaves the light of the world, and he walks into utter darkness. Judas has made his decision. As we come to verse 31, we find a challenge. There's a clear change of tone here in John 13, 31. As Judas leaves and Jesus has left with the 11 apostles that will go on to establish the church, those who are faithful and true, they will go on to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so the whole tone has changed as Judas leaves. And John 13, 31 begins what is known as Jesus' farewell discourse. In these next several verses and chapters are Jesus' last words to his disciples before he goes to the cross. In John 13, 31, Jesus looks beyond the looming cross. And as John goes out, as, as Judas goes out, Jesus is keenly aware of God's sovereign plan and its sure success. Look at me, if you will, verse 31. So when he had gone out, recognize what's going on there. When he had gone out, when Jesus' betrayer, a traitor in the midst of the twelve that he had called, when he went out to betray Jesus, to do this very act, in that moment... Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Why at that moment would Jesus say that? Why at, at one of his lowest moments, as one that he has chosen betrays him, as he sets in motion those things that will lead to the cross, why now is Jesus rejoicing that the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him? because he's keenly aware of God's sovereign plan and its sure success. Jesus mourns for Judas, but he rejoices in victory. Again, we find what we saw last week, that Jesus goes to the cross victoriously, not reluctantly. Here, in perhaps his lowest moment, as one of his most trusted disciples leaves him to betray him, Thereby setting in motion the events that will eventually lead to his death, death, Jesus looks to the glory that awaits him. It's as if it has already happened. The pieces are in place. Everything is in motion. His death is imminent and his glory is sure. And he rejoices in that. 
The Son has glorified the Father by perfectly revealing him to the world and obeying him to the cross. So here, in these verses, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. As Jesus submits to the cross, he glorifies the Father. And as the Father is glorified, the Father glorifies the Son. He shares his glory with Christ. The cross of Christ glorifies God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What the devil meant to humiliate and to defeat instead brings joy and glory and victory. And as Christ rejoices in his glory that is at hand here in verse 31 and 32, he turns his attention to his disciples. Here in verse 33, Jesus refers back to John 7, 34. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. It looks back to John 7.34, specifically to John 8.21. In those passages, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, Jews who have rejected him. And in John 8.21, he says to these Jews, these leaders who have rejected him, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die, and your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Here in John 13.33, Jesus' general message is the same. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. But he stops short. His tone is different. There is no pronouncement of condemnation given to his disciples, but a command is given. There's not a promise that you won't find me, that you will die in your sins. There's a promise that you cannot join me yet. You cannot come. Jesus is leaving the disciples, but he is not abandoning them. This new situation of separation, I am going away, you cannot follow me yet, calls for a new commandment. The commandment we see in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now you may ask, how is that commandment to love one another? How is that a new commandment? The command to love is not new. In fact, the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love others. So what makes this command new? In fact, just earlier in the first 20 verses of John 13, Jesus calls them to love one another. What is new here? The new is not the call. Well, the new is not what they are called to love. The new is what brings them together. They are no longer now united by nationality. Most importantly, what unites them is Christ. The reason to love is not to fulfill the law out of duty, but to respond to Christ's sacrificial love for them. 
They have a new reason to love now. Not because you're a Jew, not to fulfill the law, but because I have commanded you to. Because I have shown you what this looks like. You must love one another in the same way that I loved you, sacrificially. As displayed in the first 20 verses of John 13, as Jesus gets down and washes their feet, the lowest of service, and as will be displayed in just a few hours on the cross. And notice that the sacrificial love for one another is not the means to become my disciple, but it's the result of being my disciple. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Not by this you become my disciple. By this, people will know that you already are my disciple. Genuine love identifies genuine disciples. And if you really think about it, if you back up, I know this is a passage that we are familiar with, but if you back up and you read it as if it's your first time reading this, this is really kind of a surprising statement, is it not? You expect Jesus to say something along the lines of, you know, I'm going away, but I'm giving you power, and so as you go out, you will be known by the mighty works that you do. You will be known by the impressive tongues that you speak in, by the prophecies that you give. You'll be known by the powerful messages that you preach. You'll be known by the kingdoms that you topple. But you will not be known by your mighty works. It is not the tongues that you will speak or the powerful prophecies that you will give that will set you apart. You will be known by your sacrificial love. I find it fascinating to think that this is what Jesus begins with. As Judas leaves and as he is left alone with his true disciples, the eleven who believe, this is his first message to them. This is what he begins with, a call to sacrificial love. He doesn't begin with the call to go and make disciples. He begins first with the call to love one another. Brothers and sisters, I would call us this morning, we've got to get back to this primary command. The church today is so focused on fighting political battles on social media, on pointing out hypocrisy and sin in the world, that we have forgotten to love one another. Our call is not to change people's minds, but to point them to Christ so that He can change their hearts. It is interesting and important for us to note that Jesus does not call them to make disciples first. He calls them to love one another first. A church that does not sacrificially love one another cannot evangelistically love the world with any effectiveness. If we're not loving ourselves, how can we love the world? In fact, last week, as we looked at John 13, 1-20, 
As Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he calls them to love one another in like manner, I challenged us to take action. Part of the application was to set a plan in motion to take the time to love one another seriously. Not just to give mental assent to the need to love one another, but what will you do this week to love one another? My question to you this morning is how many of us actually did anything at all? How many of us ended up actually just thinking, yes, I need to do that, and then walking out of those doors in the back and forgetting and not doing a thing all week? Don't love one another because I have told you to. Love one another because the word of God calls you to love one another. How many of us this week made a phone call or reached out or prayed or cooked or served? Genuine disciples are marked by genuine love and love takes action. What did you do this week? How did you love one another sacrificially? How did you wash the feet, as it were, of your brothers and sisters in Christ? We must love one another. Finally, verses 36 to 38, we see a lesson. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? It's not surprising that Peter's the one to speak up, is it? Leave it to Peter to speak. And we often give Peter a hard time, but the reality is that I find that I am very much like Peter. I learn not because I study and learn the first time. I learn because I make mistakes. I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. I make a lot of mistakes. And I can be just as stubborn as he is. And here in John 13, 36 to 38, Peter once again speaks up. And he ends up putting his foot in his mouth. In fact, here it's as if Peter has completely missed this command, this new command that, that Jesus has given, and Peter's stuck on the idea that you're leaving us. He's completely forgotten that God called them to, Jesus called him to love one another. He's stuck on the fact, you're leaving us. He doesn't say, Lord, that is great. We will do that. How can we love one another? He says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. I love Jesus' patience as he responds to Peter. You missed what I just said. The command to love one another, you completely missed it. And yet he answers him. He responds, he reassures him, I am not abandoning you. You cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. It is only Jesus who can do what Jesus must do. It is only Jesus who can go to the cross. It is only Jesus who can glorify God in this way. But eventually, eventually Peter and the other disciples will follow Jesus to death and to glory. Eventually they will go where he is going. In fact, we'll see that in John 14. But not yet. Not now. Peter again speaks up. But I am willing to follow you anywhere, even to death. 
We saw last week, Peter's not willing to accept no for an answer. And even still here, if he does not fully comprehend what Jesus is saying, he's not going to give up. Surely there's something that I can do, Jesus. You don't, you don't know how much I love you. Surely it doesn't have to be this way. Have you thought about this, Jesus? Or what about this? Or, or I could do this. And Jesus calls Peter, Peter, stop talking and start trusting me. Stop talking and start trusting. Once again, here in John 13, 38, we find the irony that John loves oh so much. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Reality is that some 30 years from this point, Peter will lay down his life for, his, for Christ's sake. But this very night, in just a few hours, Jesus will lay down his life for Peter's sake. And yet before that hour comes, this very night, Peter will betray the Lord. The Lord that he loves so much, he will betray him three times. as if Jesus is giving him a little slap on the wrist, a big slap on the wrist. Peter, talk is cheap. It's easy to sit around this table where it's warm, where we're together as friends, where your bellies are full. It's easy to sit here and to make these big pronouncements. I will follow you anywhere. It's easy for us to sit in this room where it's warm and it's well lit and, and we have a good sound system. God has blessed us with these beautiful things. It's easy for us to sit here and to say, I will be faithful. I will love one another. I will do this. I will do that. I will make disciples. It's much different when you get out. When you come in contact with people. It's much different when the swords are drawn, when Jesus is in chains. Talk is cheap, and Peter needs to learn to be humble. He needs to learn to submit himself to God's plan. Just trust me, Peter. I must go, but I will not abandon you. I know what I am doing. It is for your good. Trust me. And I find it really interesting that apparently what Jesus says here seems to grab Peter's attention because we don't hear from Peter again for several chapters. As he moles, he must be mulling this over, thinking about this. He must really have been put in his place. As you can imagine. Trust me. And love one another. The sacrificial love of Jesus inspires us to love one another. And it calls us to trust him. Two points of application. First... Trust. Don't trust in man, but trust in God. As we look at this passage this morning, we're reminded how untrustworthy man is. Here we find Judas, whose outward appearance looks good. He looks faithful. He looks trustworthy, and yet he is a traitor. Outward appearances lie. And at the same time, we find Peter who is bold. And yet his heart 
is deceitful. His heart is weak. Brothers and sisters, don't put your trust in man. Trust God. We are so easily impressed with others and so foolishly overconfident in our own strength. And I'm not saying that we question and doubt everything that others do, but I'm saying don't put your trust in others. Trust in God. How many people have found their faith shipwrecked because they tied their hope to a Christian leader who failed? How many people have fallen because they put so much confidence in themselves to conquer sin, to say no, and too little faith in Jesus? Don't trust in others. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in Jesus. And finally, love one another. Love one another. The first commandment that Jesus gives to this little group, these 11 apostles who will faithfully go forth, who will establish the church, who will lay that foundation, the, the first command that Jesus gives them is to love one another. And brothers and sisters, we must love one another. Because when we trust God fully, then we can love others sacrificially. Trust God and love others. Trust God fully so that you can love others sacrificially.